Welcome to Jews on Film. My name is Daniel Zana. I'm a video editor, documentary filmmaker, and here with my co-host. Hello, everyone. My name is Harry Adensasser. I'm your Jewish film podcaster, and Daniel paid me $2 to read after him this time. Our guest today is an award-winning filmmaker and director based in New York City. Her documentary film debut, Charm Circle, is now available to stream on the Criterion channel. Nir Burstein, welcome to Jews on Film. Hi, thank you for having me. Hey. Thanks so much for coming on. We're really excited to have you today, Nira, to talk about your film, Charm Circle, but also the 1964 film, The Pawnbroker, that you selected, directed by Sidney Lumet. You know, before we kind of dive into some of the movie, the plot, the themes, and its, you know, legacy, uh, I wanted to ask a, a sort of a, a question just to get an understanding of like where your headspace is at. Uh, you know, we tossed around a few other options for a film, um, and you'd ultimately decided on Pawnbroker as the film today. Uh, we wanted to know sort of what made you pick this film? Well, the movie I, I originally said I wanted to see, uh, The Plot Against Harry, was yeah. another black and white movie from around the same time. So I guess I had that vibe in my in my head, which, I, by the way, I ended up seeing at the film forum. Oh, nice. What a bizarre movie. Uh, bizarre. Yeah. That's, that's the only way to say it. But, uh, so I mean, I just, it just it just seemed like a you know interesting movie. I had no idea how bleak it was gonna be. Like I just finished watching it actually for this, so it's very very freshly bleak in my mind. I'm like, what a bummer. Uh, um, but it, you know, so I just thought, you know what, this is something I don't know anything about. I've not seen this movie. Um, let's check it out. Whereas the other movies I think you mentioned I've all seen already. And I was like, I already know. I don't really know if I have much to say about them. So. Right. I, yeah. I really I really love that. I mean, I, I use this podcast as an excuse all the time to see movies that are on my list that I haven't gotten to. Like, there's nothing more exciting than when someone chooses a classic that, you know, people have been bugging me for a long time to see. And it's like, oh, well, you know, I have the reason to do it. I'm going to carve out time for my work schedule, you know, for a good reason. It happens to be with the pawnbroker that this one is is one that I actually had seen before. I okay. had, I had uh, seen it in a, a Holocaust cinema class actually, so I knew where the themes were going to come in, you know, Holocaust wise. And you know, that was a couple of years ago. I forgot in all my notes, so don't expect any kind of you know technical insight that I might bring to it. But uh, but yeah, but it certainly was a bummer. I think the comparison to uh, uh to the Harry movie is just it was very. Um, it felt very evocative of the same thing. I'm excited to hear, Daniel, you, you were mentioning some of that New York scene and it feels like that's, you know, Nira, what drew you to even this movie is just that time period, that setting, you know, what that kind of New York Jewish life looked like. And uh, I, I'm excited to hear some thoughts about that. Yeah, I definitely, as I was watching some of those, even in the trailer, when you have like Jesus like running down the street and like the camera's following him and he's just like bumping into pedestrians and there's cars, this sort of, high energy thing kind of reminded me of some of the scenes those like inner i guess to go from scene to scene within harry all these scenes of like when harry's going around town in this his chauffeured car you know we see like the yiddish like deli sign like the yiddish signs and like the deli and all the stores and things like that and so seeing new york in that time period around the 60s, uh, you know, I could definitely see the comparisons. And it's also the two films are shot in black and white at a time where I think a lot of other films were probably in color at this point. Right. Uh, this sort of like a conscious choice to to make this film, you know, seem 
you know, of a certain style, sort of, I think, French New Wave a little bit is what I've seen it sort of compared to. Um, but yeah. Like if the Twilight Zone was, did it like a Holocaust episode? And like, that's what it felt like. Yeah. What makes you say that, you think? He's just the, the main character. He's just so in his mind, right? Like he's just, when I think about Twilight Zone, oh, he's like someone just like grappling existentially, right? And they're just like, and so that's what this movie felt like, you know? Yeah. yeah. He's, I mean, he's yeah. Go ahead. You can take it. <laughs> I was going to say, he's definitely like on an island, it feels like. You know, he's so like stuck in his head. And like we don't really like peel back the layers of the onion until like a little bit later on in the film. It's something we can talk about later. But the editing in this movie is so good that like we, we see like flashes of it like at the beginning. And then as we sort of continue on in the story you know we have our like a story of what's happening and then the b story is kind of what is in his mind the entire time and the more that we kind of progress through the movie the more the layers are peeled back and we we hit those raw nerves and that's kind of when he comes apart yeah and i think you know like the, the twilight zone comparison which i like that you made i think this movie is very direct about what it's dealing with i think it actually approaches it very interestingly you know editing wise and stylistically but ultimately and this will you know hopefully bode well for our discussion but it confronts you know head on a lot of these feelings of survivor's guilt i mean you see kind of the experience of different characters the, the way that trauma is kind of carried through like that is, you know, very direct and present in this movie, you know, in a way that like, a, you know, a moralizing kind of Twilight Zone episode might, you know, confront it head on. And it actually reminds me of a conversation that we had while recording an earlier episode, but I was afraid. I actually think the conversation might have happened off mic, but I guess if I'm okay. wrong, you might hear it in the earlier episode. But we were talking about kind of the evolution of Holocaust films kind mm -hmm. of over the last couple of decades and yeah. the way... Obviously, in the years, and this came out in 1964, if I'm remembering correctly, um, yep. and and this movie, obviously, you know, you're, you know, a mere two decades, you know, away from the Holocaust, so it was kind of very much, you know, present and present with people who were, you know, not very old. Nowadays, when you think about the few Holocaust survivors that you know we have left, you have this image of someone, you know, much more elderly than, you know, even the main characters, um, Saul Nazerman in this movie, who's, you know, just an adult kind of directly confronting with his past that he remembers so vividly. So I remember in this conversation that I was referencing, we spoke about how there's an era where Holocaust films very, very confrontational and directly deal with you know the people the trauma and it's almost as the decades go on you see a kind of more you know stylistic a little bit more abstract reckoning with the horror but this was a movie that really confronted it head-on and it was uh you know uncomfortable and difficult to stomach but you know really powerful and affecting yeah absolutely it's one one of the one of the i would say one of the first ones to kind of deal with holocaust survivors in film um and I think like you're saying later on, we get much more, you know, like life is beautiful or the pianist or Schindler's list where it's like, here's like some genre flavoring, some spice added to the story of a Holocaust movie or, uh, you know, all, all sorts of other ones. Even now, like there's like, you know, revenge, like, uh, you know, take the Holocaust, but put a sort of revenge porn filter on it and you get inglorious bastards or things like that. And, you know, add a little bit of horror and you get some Nazi zombie movies. So, like, really quite quite a few different genres have had their take on on the Holocaust movie. Um, but none quite as a, I don't know. This is a very effective movie. And, you know, yeah, I have a lot to say it, uh, about it. But 
Carrie, can you can we pause for a second? Could you let us know from the IMDb summary what this film is about? Absolutely. Thanks. A, Jew, a Jewish pawnbroker, a victim of Nazi persecution, loses all faith in his fellow man until he realizes too late the tragedy of his actions. Yeah. Not with the movies at all for me, but okay. I mean, that is like the ending, but that's kind of weird how they like surmise, you know? What to you, like if you had a chance to rewrite, you know, the summary of the movie, like what would you focus more on, you think? Well, I would, um, it's, you know, I would just be, uh, you know, a pawnbroker um, grapples with um, his, you know, traumatic Holocaust experience. You know, I would just keep it big. Right. Oh, uh, yeah. And then, you know, it just what's also interesting about this movie and like when you think about like Holocaust films, which I really have not seen a lot of, you know, but it's there's no sentimentality to this. film. When you talk about movies like, you know, the was the piano. What was that? Movie? The pianist. The pianist. Pianist. Yeah. It's like the Adrian Brody one. Right. Yes. And other movies, it's, there's kind of like this like, oh, you know, and there's none of that. And you could even say the the main character is very, very, very unlikable. Like mm-hmm. very, yeah, sure. yeah, kind of an asshole, right? Like he's terrible to basically everybody. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and it's funny that this like description has him like you know realizing the tragedy of his actions and like in some ways, yeah. but by the end of it, his worldview hasn't changed. He's, I mean, there are some shifts that happen that I'm excited to get into, but but yeah, but this is very you know like we we we've covered other movies that have you know other holocaust movies and you know Jojo Rabbit is another one that I would say is in kind of the more modern skew that like romanticizes mm-hmm. right. it and makes it playful and you know there's a there's a big debate we've had this conversation in other holocaust movies we've covered like how like can you even cover the holocaust and if you're going to you know are you allowed to use you know musical scores to kind of affect emotions should you just have the images themselves uh, you know, tell the story. And this is, you know, hopefully going to key us into some context corners. So Daniel, I'll hopefully uh, set you up to kind of fill us in on the movie. But sure. like, I've heard a lot of people talk about how like Alan Renee's movies, uh, the French filmmaker, you know, he has this movie called Night and Fog, which is, you know, 30 minutes came out in, uh, in like the 50s, I think. And it's 55, Daniel is signaling to me. And it is a, you know, 30 minutes, very, I mean, it's documentary. It directly confronts what happens. It shows some of the most, you know, upsetting and horrific images that are very real. And I've, I've heard a lot of filmmakers. I wish I had a quote from someone saying, you know, you cannot tackle the Holocaust. Night and Fog was the only one that was able to just show you it and like stop romanticizing, stop turning it into anything. I think this movie does a great job at showing, you know, the moments, the few very sparse moments, but the few that it does in their brutality, but it's not trying to generalize or moralize, you know, what happened. It's just showing how it's impacting this one character. Like mm-hmm. you said, it's it's a character study in the head of our main character. And it's just him dealing with the raw brutality without kind of coming to this, like at the end, like, oh, my tragedy has inspired me to be a good person and help other people like that. That's not, it's not the movie that we watched. You know, it's not the right. broker. Yeah. I mean, uh, imagine you were in a video store. Would this be like in like a drama section or in like the Holocaust film section? I, I actually think you can't distinguish it from the Holocaust. I, I think that's okay. like, like you can talk that this is a story about, you know, trauma, mm-hmm. grief, you know, dealing with it, but it's, it feels a very specific flavor of it. And, uh, and yeah, and I think we'll, we'll come, you know, through, through our discussion, we'll come to really, you know, what it's, what it's showing about the Holocaust, but yeah, but I don't think it could be anywhere else. So that's for Harry, Harry's video store, which hopefully you'll open soon. Nira, like what, what about you? Do you have, uh, you know, do you have any thoughts as far as like, Yeah. 
Yeah, I don't really, I mean, I, the genre categories don't really, you know, do anything for me. Honestly, if I saw a Holocaust section at a, at a video store, I probably would not go to that. <laughs> yeah, I hear, I hear you. Yeah. You know, so maybe I wouldn't put it there, but, you know, it's really interesting with the whole Holocaust stuff. I, for me, this movie is not about the Holocaust because it's about, it doesn't matter. I'm not saying it doesn't matter, but like, this is about someone struggling, you know, with trauma. You mm-hmm. can replace that trauma with a million other things. Hundred right? percent. Yeah. That woman, the other, the lady who's trying to give out a sandwich. Yeah. Oh right. Yeah. You know, that's what we, like she was saying before we realized her whole story, right? Um, and you know, you can it's it's and I felt like in terms of the way I appreciated the editing and the flashing, I thought that was really well done. Um, but at the same time. I felt like if you if you have to treat a movie like it's standalone, like you have to be like, you can't assume their audience knows anything, mm-hmm. right? So the, I feel like a movie has to be complete of itself. Right. This film, I feel like it is assuming the experience of the viewer to know everything about the images of the of the Holocaust stuff, mm-hmm. and. You know, and and so then it's asking the audience to project all their feelings about that, and like you know, obviously for me as a Jewish person and had a lot of Holocaust education growing up, obviously all those images make sense to me. But like, I don't know if it if it would have the same impact for someone who doesn't. You know, mm-hmm. right? I I wish that in some ways, not that it needs to portray the Holocaust, but been more complete in that way if that's central to the story. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, it's um I heard that, you know, some feedback from the film or some criticisms of the film that you know, obviously a lot of people will get into it in the context corner, but a lot of people found this film like too too um what do you call it? Not transgressive, but just too raw and too too of yeah, too evocative, just too much and like it had a hell of a time getting released because of all the ratings bureaus and the and the production codes and things like that ultimately i think some jews were even some jewish you know critics and things like that were like oh no you went too light on the holocaust stuff it should have been way more hardcore because a lot of the scenes it's sort of a lot of implications of what we're seeing and and we don't really see the full effect that you know we don't see gratuitous violence or you know um atrocities things like that um so i understand you know that criticism um but it does I think at that time period, though, a lot of people were much more familiar with the Holocaust because it was like so close. You know, this is what, 64 and the, and the war ended in 45. So it's not that long ago. It's maybe 20 years. Like you were it's saying like before, it's 9-11 to now. Right, exactly. So yeah, I think yeah, it, right. at, at this point, I mean, now it's a bit different. Um, who was I? I don't know. Someone I was talking to, like people's relationship to the Holocaust is like old people on film or like the Holocaust didn't happen. Right. Like a lot of, you know, there's a lot of people who that that's that, you know, they through through online stuff. They they connect to it in that way. And uh, yeah, I think the the hopefully we give the audience from back then a little bit more credit that they kind of got some of this stuff. I think the film was, you know, uh, well-received uh, after it came out eventually, and it was a very successful film, but uh, I don't want to tease my context corner too much. Uh, Harry, it looks like you want to say something before I jump into the corner. Right before you jump in, I'll just sure. add, like, 
in, in our conversation about what is this movie doing to portray the Holocaust, the scope of it and his memories are very personal and very, very small. Like what little we do see from his memories, it's it's basically just kind of one march along some fence, right? Like it's he's not giving you the full scope of it. You're not seeing it. You end up seeing a little bit later when he was kind of brought in. You, you get the full memory. He's brought in to kind of see, you know, something terrible that's done to his wife. But you don't get like the scope. Like this movie isn't trying to, you know, teach you or, or give you everything that was going on, the entire machine. A lot of Holocaust movies you'll see take, you know, a much bigger view. You see all the barracks together. You see people marching and a lot of things happening and it's trying to give you the scope. I mean, this movie's not giving you the war. It's not giving you the Holocaust. It's, it's so personal in a way that I think you're absolutely, absolutely right, Nira. Like it is assuming that you are, you know, more than just familiar, like that you understand everything, the context that you're either taking that into the movie with you or that you just kind of have that. And, you know, my gut, my instinct was to say that, you know, maybe when the movie came out, like you said, Daniel, people just were more intimately familiar, like that didn't mm -hmm. need to be lectured. But, you know, well, I don't know. I don't know what they were. And that obviously that stuff changes. And you have to kind of be aware of that reality, because unfortunately now, you know, there are many people who don't you know, who aren't maybe are not watching this movie necessarily, but also just don't have that same relationship to uh, to the history. Even in the movie, right? Like Jesus doesn't know what the numbers are. Like they ask questions about like, That's oh, true. is it part of a secret club? Or like, how do I get into that club? And things like that. So so maybe, you know, I, I wasn't alive back then. Um, counter, you know, contrary to all the gray hair in my beard, <laughs> you know, so I don't know. I don't know. But, um, you know, Jewish people obviously like that had family you know, obviously they, they knew about the Holocaust, mm -hmm. but I question, especially like, you know, never mind about denial, like it, but you think about 9-11, well, that was news. We could see that right away. Mm -hmm. I think right. that, you know, the public's uh, access to, to news at the time was very different. And like, I don't think, you know, you know, there was, I don't know what kind of coverage really, you know, was really exploring the atrocities of the Holocaust right away. There was just so much just above it with the whole war and stuff and everything like that. That just, you know, I don't think anyone really, really re realized the gravity of the situation unless they were, you know, someone who experienced in some capacity. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think certainly if you had like a Holocaust a survivor in your family, that was like, you never forgot that because like they were constantly telling you stories or not telling you stories and you kind of like tiptoe around. Oh, that's, you know, you don't talk to Bubby and Zadie about that kind of stuff. They don't like to discuss it. Go ahead. Sounds like I don't have experience with that in my family, but I, I, I'm eager to, sounds like you had maybe Harry. I thankfully distant experience, you know, my mm -hmm. family was very fortunate in a lot of cases, but I was just going to say like, even what you're saying, you know, we don't talk to Bubby about that. Like, the Holocaust obviously is something that wasn't, you know, very familiar to everyone, but even this movie and just understanding the time, like people didn't talk about PTSD in the same way. I don't think oh, there was sure. even a term yeah. for PTSD. It was, mm -hmm. uh, you know, what's that term that I'm thinking of that like, uh, shell shock. Uh, yeah. Like shell shock was oh, something yeah. that might've been thrown around, but like mm -hmm. this movie is, I mean, it's doing a lot of lifting cause it's trying to fill it. I guess it's not, it has a lot to maybe catch up audiences on, but it, it's definitely, you know, I, again, I, I think this all just goes to what I was saying earlier about the scope of this movie is very much on him. And like we were saying earlier, very much on what's going on in his head and his own experience of it. And 
as this character is someone who suppresses things, which we'll get into once we get to the discussion, because I, I wanted to start there. But if this is a character that really suppresses their emotions, you know, his memory isn't giving the context to an audience of here's everything that happened. It really is showing up in the flashes that he's fighting to not actually experience. So it, you know, in terms of it, like working in the world of the movie, I think it is very reflective of his mind state, you know, how little context we kind of get to everything. Does it work effectively to a modern audience that might be encountering this? It might leave some room to be desired, but at least within the world of the movie, I, I can see how it's kind of mapped on to, you know, this character who doesn't want to think about any of this. And that's why, you know, he doesn't even, even when he does have that full kind of flashback sequence at the end, it doesn't take things as far as I think he's willing to let himself go. Yeah. So anyways, to cut, sorry to cut everyone off, but I think we should get to context corner so we can really jump into the discussion and, you know, just keep things moving on, on the pawnbroker. Sure. Yeah. So I'm going to give a little bit of context on the film, its creation, its reception, um, and feel free to like add in, uh, any thoughts or, 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 you know, all are welcome in the context corner. Uh, the film stars Rod Steiger as Saul Naserman. At this point, he was uh, in other films like On the Waterfront and In the Heat of the Night. Uh, you know, he'd do a lot of other films uh, in the future, including a notable cameo in Mars Attacks. Um, in terms of the directing, uh, Sidney Lumet is, uh, you know, directed this film eventually, but initially Stanley Kubrick, Franco Zeffirelli, and uh, Carl Rise were, um, you know, considered for uh, for directing, but they turned it down for various reasons. Um now, this is interesting. In terms of Saul Naserman, the character, there were a lot of other people um, uh, considered for the role. Groucho Marx, Kirk Douglas, Lawrence Olivier, James Mason, Burl Ives. But ultimately, I think Rod Steiger was like very invested in the film and wanted to see it uh, come to light. I think he took much less than his normal salary, but he really wanted to work with Sidney Lumet. The film right. had like a $930,000 budget and over, uh, you know, over its release grossed over $4 million. Um, Rod Steiger was Oscar nominated for best actor in this movie. And this, you know, according to Wikipedia, this is the first film produced in the U.S. to deal with the Holocaust from the perspective of a survivor, of a survivor. Um, before it was released, it did have a number of, uh, you know, issues getting a distributor and getting released uh, due to the subject matter and nudity uh, in this in the film because at that point the production code was still in effect and you know films were not able to show sort of violence or nudity uh, but the MPAA granted this film an exception the production code ended in 1968 so just a few years later on um, but I think in context of you know the nudity and the violence in context to like the film itself kind of made sense uh, for why it was depicted in here. So, um, but yeah, it was, it was quite a, uh, for the time, I think, you know, the violence and nudity were, were a big deal. So the fact that it was released and, and actually like successful, right. It wasn't just like a small indie film. It was like very well received. So the fact that it was like nominated and did really well at the box office is something to call out. Maybe I read this somewhere, or, but it, I mean, was it also like, it also showed like, you know, a, a black person and a white person like in bed together, like interracial relationships. Mm -hmm. and, and, and as you said, this movie came out in 1964. That mm -hmm. seems pretty, you know, much, pretty much a political statement at that time to do something like that. Yeah. Remind me who, who we're talking about. It was, uh, 
It was Ortiz and and the the sex worker. It's like when they're oh. talking about like how he's going to buy his own pawn shop. Oh right, 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 right. Okay, sure. And then I think also like Rodriguez, the uh, the pimp that he, he, I think he was like the first depiction of like a uh, um, a gay pimp, I believe. There was something about that. Like it's implied that like this is one of the. Uh, yeah, especially at the time, I think it was. I think that also contributed to why it was having like a really hard time um, getting, you know, getting put out into the world. Oh yeah, Variety considered Brock Peters the first actor to portray a confirmed homosexual character in an American film. So maybe this is like, you know, they they don't really like show him engaging with other men in the film, but like he walks upstairs when his white boyfriend comes home. Remember at the end of that conversation where he's like. You're going to sign those papers and then he walks upstairs. So worth calling out. But yeah, definitely a, a groundbreaking film in that regard for sure. Um, I feel like we've set up a lot of the context and we kind of know what the plot's about. Is it okay to take a quick break and we'll come back? Does that work? Yeah. Okay. Awesome. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Jews on Film. We are here with Nira Bursting to discuss The Pawnbroker. Harry, you want to get us started? For sure. So I wanted to open the conversation by having a discussion of just this movie's depiction of trauma, repressed trauma specifically. I mean, that's a big theme of the way, his inability to talk about it. And I actually wanted to take it in the direction of just kind of shared, but also individual trauma. I mean, Nira, you pointed out earlier that this is less a Holocaust movie more than it's a you know movie about everyone's kind of trauma. And you know, there's one scene in particular that comes to mind when I say that, that when you know he's talking to the woman who meets him in the park and she's telling the story about her husband dying and how that's kind of afflicted her with this loneliness. One day there was a young man. We fell in love. We got married. He died. Like that. His heart just stopped. And I found out that loneliness is the normal state of affairs. For most people. My dear Miss Birchfield, how touchingly naive you are. You know, he kind of deval uh, our, our character uh, Saul kind of devalues that and says, Your yours is not the same. But it is an individual experience that she's going through. And you can kind of map that onto a number of different characters that are, you know, experiencing those same kind of traumas burgeoning on them. So I wanted to hear just your thoughts on, you know, how this movie kind of shows almost like like relative trauma, how people kind of individually experience that and how it's both shared, but also, you know, distinct to their own situations. And of course, you know, where kind of the weight of the Holocaust, you know, the unthinkable, you know, trauma associated with that kind of weighs into this entire thing. But I just wanted to hear if anyone had some thoughts on the on those questions a little bit. What's interesting, I, you know, I, I feel like this movie, you know, the writer was coming from a really personal place and maybe you know, you could maybe they maybe they knew someone like this that like, you know, shut down, you know, in terms of like, you know, how to deal with trauma. And I imagine that like if someone in the audience saw this movie and recognized someone they knew or, or, or themselves, and it's really different, you know, to see that on a screen, someone who doesn't want to deal with something, right? And and this 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 film is not about 
the Holocaust is bad. This movie is like, take care of yourself. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. And this is what happens when you just like box yourself up, you know, and, and, you know, just, you know, he's living in his trauma, like constantly. He's like, it's like, he won't talk about it. You get, that's all he thinks about. And that's all he, that's his whole existence. Like, and it's just, it, it, it it's unfortunately, you think going through the Holocaust was hard enough, right? But now it's like this person is a shell of a person, right? And it's really a cautionary tale about how to move on, you know, how, how to like heal from terrible things. Yeah. I, I just want to call out, I mean, you said, you know, he boxed himself in and just one of the very, you know, like visual motifs of this movie is you see him in the pawn shop. He's literally surrounded right. by a cube of like of a jail cell. I mean, he's yeah. literally yeah. You know, trapping himself in. And I think that's a really cool observation that, you know, he thinks that he's shutting this out. He has that, you know, scene that I think I saw, I heard even in the trailer where he says, he goes, I don't think about this ever. I don't engage with it. And I just live my life day by day. But the reason that these memories kind of shoot in, in this very unique editing style is because he doesn't have an outlet for it. You know, perhaps mm -hmm. again, you know, I don't need to uh, suggest therapy for a person in this movie, but like perhaps if he had an opportunity or if he was, you know, letting it out, talking to someone about it, it wouldn't, you know, just show up in these bursts, you know, when he's on the subway, when he's, you know, you know, looking at someone, whatever it is. So, uh, so, but, but yeah, but there's definitely, you know, this kind of entrapment is he's, he's continuing his suffering, you know, beyond the actual cause of the trauma. I, I think you are, you know, very correct to point out. One thing I forgot to mention in the context corner is that the film is based on a novel by Edward Lewis Wallant. Um, and he was, a you know, a Jewish writer, from what I can read, I don't know that he had any like personal experience with the Holocaust, but uh, you know, just to your point near about like the writers, I think it, it was a 1961 book, very well received. Um, to, you know, to to your point or to your question, Harry, about like the trauma, I think, you know, he he has the opportunity multiple times to connect with Jesus. He turns Jesus down. He has the opportunity to connect with uh, Marilyn. You know, she offers him a sandwich, all this kind of stuff. You know, that's like her peace offering, you know, uh, and he even turns that down. And his, and his girlfriend, Tessie, you know, she I think she also went through the Holocaust as well. Is that my understanding? And then still, he's he's just unable to process what he went through and be able to, like, engage with society. You know, it's a challenge because he also works at a pawn shop and is constantly, you know, he's customer facing. So he has to deal with people all the time, but he does so in the most sort of curt, succinct manner, you know. Yeah, I am with a load of profit for you. This alley makes the table look like a table. <laughs> I sell them for $10 a pair. $2. My goodness. Well, his candlesticks are very high quality. Like, he doesn't make eye contact, doesn't engage, no small talk, anything like that. It's it's hard to watch, for sure. Um, it's... Yeah. It's it's completely... It's cut off. It's detached. I mean, this this reminds me, you know, this being Jews on film, I want to hone in on, you know, this, you know, a scene that really stuck to me where he's talking, um, where Jesus is asking him, you know, how did, how'd you guys, you know, talking about the Jews collectively get so good at money, mm, you know, like the secret to your success, from? right? The secret to your success. Exactly. And maybe we can get the whole cliff in here uh, for that as well. But he just talks about it. He goes, so how come you people come to business so natural? You people. Oh, I see. Yeah. I see, I see, you, uh, 
You want to learn the secret of our success, is that right? I, I teach you. First of all, you start off with a period of several thousand years, during which you have nothing to sustain you but a great bearded legend. Oh, my friend, you have uh, no land to call your own. But critically, what I really focused on there, he says, you know, you have no place, you have no land, you have nothing to return to, so you just focus on, you know, getting money just so that you can afford these things, and then you realize that the money is just, you need more money and you need more, and you, like, stop to... And you don't take a moment to stop and reflect on kind of what, what it's for. And, of course, that is... You know his philosophy in the movie like he puts his head down goes into work you don't get the impression that he's doing it to support his love life or his family i mean the one scene we do see with you know his uh his uh his you know former wife's sister so i guess his in-laws family mm -hmm. you know at the beginning of the movie he is you know on his own very solitary like it's not just this wall but it's his inability to kind of um to you know to whatever to to allow himself to become part of a, a larger community. And, you know, I'm not sure we have the whole answer to, you know, what is the key to, you know, Jewish history and, you know, kind of conquering collective trauma, you know, what is it about? But I guess like where does kind of community and what is the movie saying about where community and, you know, faith and a people can kind of combat, it, it kind of reinforces collective trauma because obviously we are a people, you know, as, as Jewish people who are inheriting kind of the suffering from our ancestors, but it also, can combat it in a in certain way. And maybe, you know, I don't know if I'm equipped or, you know, the rest of you, if you want to try to jump in and answer, you know, these big questions, but it felt like the movie was proposing them. So if anyone had thoughts, uh, please. I will say that like, in terms of like grief and trauma and, and things like that, there are, there are certain, you know, systems in place with, within the Jewish tradition to help process a lot of this stuff. And it's not always super helpful, but it can be for, for people who are like, you know, interested in that kind of stuff with like shivas, you know, like there are routines and, and, you know, you need to say Kaddish. So you have to go to a minion and that's like 10 other people and, and you have to sit Shiva for seven days and, you know, uh, for, for different rituals, part of that is like being with a people, a group of people. And like, there is not a single moment that Saul is like connected to his community at large besides like individuals. And he seems to like, not want that but you know we do get a we do get like a little snippet of like a church from jesus like popping in and then popping back out but aside from that there's like no shul no community that he's like a part of and i do kind of wonder what that would have been like for saul you know if he was you know connected with other survivors in the support group or like you said harry going to therapy or like going to shul and having a little lachaim and like you know bonding and sharing trauma with other people because sometimes when you're able to like talk things through a little bit more um it can certainly help but yeah a lot of jews you know um you know and you can see from his path there was someone that was very uh like traditionally very orthodox looking so mm -hmm. he, I, that was part of his circle in some ways probably but a lot of jews just you know after the holocaust experience just completely cut ties with their religious you know observance sure and that, for someone like saul like he just you know you know just completely disconnecting from his from his jewishness Right. And what also was really sad is because yeah, they were like Kaddish and, and 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 Shiva. Those things are so important for healing to pause and allow yourself to heal. And he might not have ha allowed himself to have that experience, even though maybe pre Holocaust those things would have been the things he would have done. You know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, 
I mean, as far as like, uh, I don't know if we have talked about it yet, but like the beginning of the film starts with the flashback of like Saul's uh, wife, two kids and his like either his parents or his in-laws all sort of being taken away from him early on. And that's sort of that's the trauma that we see initially. We don't really see what happens. We sort of just see them looking out at the distant shock and then we kind of he's waking up from a dream in the suburbs of New York. So we don't really know until later on in the film what happens. Um, but that's sort of his trauma that we are referring to in addition to the, you know, being in the camps and other things like that. Yeah. I, and I'll, I'll use that to kind of open up a, a second topic of discussion because, you know, his initial trauma, like you mentioned, is really, it's what he's looking at, right? We, we see kind of his perspective. We see him a couple of times. We kind of go back to that memory. He's playing with his kids and all of a sudden, you know, he kind of freezes. And ultimately we see it's these SS officers have kind of come to their, you know, presumably idyllic village, wherever they are. And it's kind of the beginning of, you know, what would ultimately be, you know, his undoing, of course. And that kind of theme of, of observing, right, of observing almost like voyeuristically from a distance, like and, and passively, I would suggest, is something that kind of is mirrored throughout the entire movie. I mean, we know his ultimate trauma, which we, again, we finally see at the end where he, you know, is forced by these officers to look into a room where, you know, we see who's presumably his wife is forced to sleep with you know, one of the other officers. And again, it's just, it's his being forced to kind of look on very passively. And the way he sits in his chair, he's always at a distance. And, you know, just to keep, you know, listing off all of like the look at me's, I mean, there's, you know, one of the things that really triggers that repressed memory is when he finally, when he sees, um, I forget her character's name, but the, um, but the sex worker who, you know, takes off her, her, uh, her top and she, you know, encourages him to look at her and he's, she's like, And again, this is all the memories, you know, I'm not inventing something that this is threaded throughout the movie. There's this kind of, you know, voyeuristic, but I'm, I want to focus on kind of very passive inaction, you know, kind of inactively, you know, looking. And I think what the movie does is it kind of, you know, in the IMDb summary, like we said, it focuses too much on the end, but it says he finally kind of confronts or he learns, you know, the, or he, I guess he learns from this way of life. But I, I think what the movie tells him is that there the movie or he kind of gets to this place of there has to be a little bit more of you know inactive like i think his decision you know the, the kind of climactic decision for me is when he decides he's not going to sign that form you know for whatever sketchy business rodriguez was doing he says like mm -hmm. it's the first time that there's someone in authority you know is telling him you have to do right. this you have to you know whatever and he kind of takes that active stand so i think that this movie I, I, I do think it's kind of tracking, and I know I'm I'm kind of rambling on at this point, but I do think it's tracking, you know, this kind of passive observance towards a little bit more of like an active, you know, what can you do more than looking? How can you kind of like, and that as a, almost path forward from, uh, you know, from just being stuck in your head with these kind of memories repeating over and over again. Yeah, it's um, it's tough. Like once he tries to have a little bit of agency in his life and get out from under the thumb of Rodriguez, who's like his new sort of uh, SS officer, sort of like there's even that like sort of flashback, you know, when he's asking him, so will you sign? Will you sign? And we do like jump cuts to the SS officer, you know, back in the concentration caps. And he's like, no, I'm out of the Holocaust. I'm going to take some agency. I'm going to like, you know, I'm not going to sign your thing. And, you know, ultimately... Like he, he tries to change things a little bit, but then he's presented with this opportunity to like mentor Jesus and like 
become have him become like the next generation of pawnbroker and like he turns it down you know he's he like we were talking about the symbolism before remember about the cage and he's blocked himself off he literally has like let jesus into his cage and like he is in there with him and they you know there's that like really touching scene where he teaches him how to tell gold where he's scratching the touchstone and adding, like pay attention you see you take an object like this watch right it's a touchstone you rub it on the touchstone like that you see that now that leaves a mark there right mm -hmm. so then you take a little acid here and you put it on that mark on the touchstone like that now you watch it you see mm -hmm. now if that uh, turns a bright green then that means it's brass let me write it down all right Bright green brass. means it's brass, right? And if it turns a milky white, that means it's silver. I'm like, oh, more of that. Like, let's let's have a little like you know mentor mentee situation going on, and it just it's not it's not meant to be because of all the stuff that all the stuff that has happened. You know, all the trauma that he's inherited, all the experiences that he's had, and he's like soured on humanity. It's it's really unfortunate. The title of the film, I'm like pawnbreaker and not pawnbroker for some reason i don't know where that comes from but but i feel like you know the the theme of this movie is definitely like a, a broken person so i feel like he's more of a, a, a breaker than a broker in this mm. movie but yeah i love where they placed him like the pawnbroker it's such a new york jewish thing too and i mean that job in itself is very you know uh has, has his own trauma that that's the really really scary kind of work like as you mentioned like he's went from his sf to very guess like you know continuous cycle and you think about that in the greater context of the holocaust like jews being in the stasi you know and how like it's kind of like you, you just you continue that it's very hard to break these cycles of the trauma once you're once you're used to it Sure. And it's interesting because I think he thinks the way that he's breaking it is by kind of removing himself from the equation. Like if I don't, you know, stand in here, it's almost like my life will be kind of net neutral. I won't impact anything negatively. I won't impact it positively. And I think that kind of trigger moment now that I think about it is that scene where he kind of learns that Rodriguez, you know, the money that's kind of bankrolling his uh, pawn, pawn shop is coming from you know, like this, uh, this like whorehouse, like it's coming from this kind of, yeah. this prostitution. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. And I think he realizes in that moment, I didn't ask questions. I thought I was this almost like innocent bystander. Right. And this is a common theme when people discuss, you know, res responsibility with the Holocaust. I think he thought I can pull myself out of the equation. And, you know, ultimately he felt like he was guilty for doing something that was morally reprehensive or reprehensive to him. Like he was, you know, implicitly related to that. And all of a sudden I think he realizes you know, I can't just pull myself out. I'm directly involved. And, you know, could you tie his inability to, you know, mentor uh, Jesus to kind of what ultimately befalls him, you know, his ultimate death later on? Like, I don't know if the movie is going far enough to say that you have to make that one-to-one -one connection, but it's clear that, you know, his life hasn't been as, you know, neutral as sidestepping the cycle as, you know, maybe he wishes it were. Yeah. I, I wish that like Saul... You know, if we're if we're going back to this like mentor mentee like teacher student relationship, I wish that Saul had taught Jesus that the most important thing isn't money, because if once Jesus gets that in his head, he's like, oh, I money is above all else. I don't I could forego personal relationships and things like that, and money is the key. 
And then he gets like, you know, Saul pisses him off and says like, yeah, you're the scum of the earth. And he's like, all right, well, I'm going to throw that relationship with Saul aside. Now I'm going to pursue the next most important thing in life, which is money. So I'm going to like rob Saul because he told me that's the most important thing and I need to do that. So it's ultimately, I don't know, I feel like Saul is somewhat responsible in a few ways for like Jesus's untimely death, because he has taught him that like money is the most important thing and all else is secondary. It's really unfortunate, <laughs> kind of a bummer. Yeah, it is bleak. The movie is bleak, but it there's a lot to unwrap there. So I definitely think this is a movie, you know, worth watching for sure. Yeah. Yeah. You were talking before like about the pawnbroker profession and I just wanted to point out that like historically Jews have been pawnbrokers I think since they were forbidden from like owning land and things like that in Europe it, you know they often turn to being pawnbrokers as a profession and I think uh you know there are um you know there's some stereotypes around you know Jews being kind of like crooked and and cheating people out of their money and and things like that which is why they are you know Saul is sort of subjected to to being called like a kike or a shini or things like that in the movie. Yeah. Yeah. And I think even in the movie, like as a role, I really think it's so perfect. Not only does it embody, you know, a Jewish character in that time and place, but it is, it's literally net neutral, right? He's taking things and then selling them back and taking and selling them back. He never owns things. He doesn't change them. Like he just mm. kind of moves things around. And again, it's his way of removing himself from the equation ultimately, you know, unsuccessfully. Yeah. Maybe I missed it, but like, you know, the first like hour or an hour or so of the movie, I was like, is he going to sell anything? <laughs> yeah. He's not really, he's just spending money. Like, right. Might just be a dollar, but like, he's not, I, there was very few of him selling till later on in the movie. Till um, later on, yeah. But yeah, I think one of you mentioned that like this, that whole speech about, you know, with, with Jesus and telling him how, you know, how, how Jewish people who couldn't have land and it seems mm -hmm. like he's complaining. But the idea of developing the mind, and it was just, it's such a beautiful speech, actually. And get yourself a still larger piece of cloth, and so you repeat this process over and over, and suddenly you discover something. You have no longer any desire, any temptation to dig into the earth to grow food, or to gaze at a limitless land and call it your own, no, no. You just go on and on and on, repeating this process over the centuries, over and over, and suddenly you make a grand discovery. You have a mercantile heritage. You are a merchant. You're known as a usurer, a man with secret resources, a witch, a pawnbroker, a shini, a maki, and a kite. And I do feel that. Um, and that's, you know, partially a lot of um, anti-Semitism comes from. It's, it, it, they make it seem, oh, yeah, it's about money or whatever. But like that Jews have been able to be smart about certain things. And that creates a jealousy. And that's, we know, is a big part of, you know, the uprising of, you know, Nazism, I think, for sure. Yeah, I, I think it's whenever, you know, and this is historical, like cyclical, you know, Judaism, it's whenever you kind of distinguish yourselves in any field and the people of the book. I mean, that's clearly something that, you know, has historically been Jewish that, you know, puts the target on your back. So I think he's, you know, as a, as an embodiment of kind of in the post-Holocaust world, I think I've said this a few times, but, you know, removing himself like he is, you know, doesn't want to stand out like in a position where people would accuse him of being you know difficult jealous like even when they engage with him in conversation he never talks back he doesn't say anything other than same address two dollars you know just slides it to them because he's right. not 
you know, letting himself become, you know, stand out, I guess, in a way that might make him a target. I wanted to talk a little bit about New York now, if that's okay. You know, we talked a little bit earlier on about the film having like a, a similar vibe as like Plot Against Harry, which was around the same era in New York. But because it's shot in like 1964, we have like a different New York than what we have now, which is don't even get me started on my soapbox about what New York looks like now and what it looked like when I lived there. <laughs> but, you know, like a lot of stuff was being built. It's the 1960s. It was filmed um, on 116th and Park in uh, East Harlem. And so, you know, we get a lot of, of New York flavor, whether it's like the cars, the streets, the music, like, you know, this is a Quincy Jones's like first music score. Um, so that's worth, you know, kind of pointing out because it's kind of like that melting pot vibe we have going on. We have a lot of different interesting characters. We have like all the customers who come into the store just reflecting the sort of diversity of New York at that time. Um, you know, we contrast the New York that we see with the New York in the suburbs. And then we also see like um, Maryland's house in like the, I think there's some apartments near Lincoln Square. And, you know, even those scenes when like Saul is walking around, like seemingly overnight, we usually get like a good New York, you know, perspective. But I wanted to get your thoughts and see if there's any sort of like favorite parts of New York that were depicted in the film or you know, as both of you currently live in New York, I don't live there anymore. So I may be a little bit more nostalgic. You both, you know, you experience that kind of stuff every day. But what are your thoughts, you know, about the New Yorkness of this movie? I definitely feel like I've been in multiple apartments that remind me of Maryland's, that like terrace. Mm-hmm. Um, and like, Daniel, like your old place on like Grand Street and those. Oh, old, yeah. Uh-huh. I don't think, you know, they kind of remind me over there. Right. And I love the, the, the last shot of the film. Uh, you know, kind of like this, right? It's kind of like this uh, tracking back dolly from this corner street. And I forget there was some amazing store sign. I forget what it was right now, but it was, just, it's, it's just a, a beautiful street scene, I think. Because so much of the movie that happens inside, it's pretty claustrophobic. Yeah. Yeah. I think it was shot on location too, which is really cool. Like it felt like, you know, everything inside the store was like very like orderly and not chaotic and then outside it was like quincy yeah. jones music and like very upbeat and crazy and the editing was a little frenetic but uh harry you're in a different part of new york than nira but you know th- what did this film stir up for you in terms of its new yorkness um uh, i mean it was a difficult scene obviously it's, it's one of the big climactic moments when he gets on the subway right because he starts flashing into the cattle cars which is you know a very challenging and you know heartbreaking kind of association but on a lighter note, it was nice to see an old subway and think about how, you know, it's changed and what it looked like. And I noted the different kind of bars that were on the top that people were hanging on to and whatever, like it was, it, it felt like it, it fit kind of the mode of the movie as this like lone man in a very, very big happening city where people have just moved on and they're doing different things with their lives and they're, you know, grieving and, and celebrating and just, you know, living something else. And I think it was you know, starkly effective, just seeing him still somehow be, like you said, very inside and reclusive with everything that was kind of happening around him. Like just seeing that all, all the hubbub in the city. It's very busy. And there's like seeing that like some things are similar and some things uh, have changed, you know, like that scene where like Jesus is like running through the market to find the guys at like billiard hall, 
like because he's like okay the robbery is gonna happen i gotta go find these guys so he like runs to one billiard hall they're not there and then he runs i think that was like the 59th street market underneath that bridge where he runs in and there's like tons of like chickens and like people running around and just sort of that like busyness i'm not saying that seattle's like real sleepy but it definitely does <laughs> not have that sort of same energy sure. granted that was the 60s and you know we're now in 2023 that's a long time ago but it's just you know uh, maybe I just need to go back to New York. Maybe that's what it is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I thought it did a very good job, like portraying that New York of of the then, you know, of that time period. Um, you know, a lot of the handheld stuff. Uh, you know, shot shots from the car, tracking people as they run around the streets, and then, you know, like I was saying before, that scene where Saul's running around aimlessly. That's also kind of handheld, and we're kind of pointing up at the sky, and we see all these things under construction, and some of the lighting and. Harry, if you do want to see a, a subway car like that, you could go to the New York City Transit Museum. I don't know if you've ever been there before, but they have all the old cars. So you can really kind That's of cool. check it out. Yeah. The old so. ads, like really oh. kind of cool. Yeah. Like ads in the subway. Have you been before? I have. Yeah, it's awesome. This is a plug for the Transit Museum. We never thought we'd get that in this episode. But <laughs> um, what do you say we take a quick break again and then we could come back to categories? Does that work? Unless yes, you want it works. No, wow. I'm just I'm dis. I, I really thought you were going to go subway to the stretch train, but I'm uh, I'm a oh, little disappointed you didn't okay. make that connection. But ah. but yes, we can take a break and we can come in with the stretch train and everything else. That's coming ah, after yes. that. Should I retake it and? No. no. <laughs> All right, we'll be right back. Welcome back to Jews on Film. We are here with Nira Bursting talking about the pawnbroker. Harry, you have some categories for us, I understand. Yeah, let's get started with what was to you guys the most Jewish scene in the movie. Full stop. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think maybe the scene about the, uh, you know, the numbers on Saul's hands. I think that's probably um, a, a more tangible example of like someone engaging with Saul's Judaism and or his experience rather as like a Holocaust survivor and that whole speech. You want to tell me something, Mr. Nassiman? What is what is that? That is that a, a secret society or something? Yeah. yeah well, what do I do to join? And it's interesting, like his reaction to it, rather than like get into it, he kind of gave some sort of like sideways answer. Where he's like, "Oh yeah, secret society." Da da da. Like I thought that was, you know, a pretty Jewish scene. Is you know both in the content and his reaction to it. So. I would say that was uh, my most Jewish scene. Nira, do you have one that comes to mind? Yeah, I mean, when he gets called a kike, that's pretty Jewish. Yeah, yeah for really sure. Called, you know, right. unless it's being misused. But also his reaction, obviously we know Saul was very closed off, but his, his reaction actually at, at that was actually very noble, and he just kind of takes and lets it go. And that is, I think, also a generally... Uh, Jewish response to certain things like what's the point of engaging in it like in an argument or yelling back at somebody who talks to you that way both pretty upbeat answers for for most Jewish scene but like we said this is a very bleak film so it's appropriate Harry how about yourself yeah I'll, I'll take it a little bit more upbeat in, in almost of like a disengaging kind of way uh -huh. I, I was thinking of that you know there's a very specific kind of the New York Jewish lifestyle, but, you know, the Long Island home that we kind of see in the beginning and seeing the family kind of in that, you know, very familiar mode and what that like, you know, that kind of 
like Hamptons, whatever, uh, Long Island kind of beach house place. But um, but specifically just again, and we, we don't really learn the extent of the trauma that uh, Saul's dealing with because at that point, because this happens so early in the movie, but mm-hmm. the extent of that is the next generation, right? You see kind of his, uh, his niece and nephew are just like so blissfully unaware of what's going on in his head. Did you sleep long enough, my son? I wasn't sleeping. No. No, he was drawing his pornographic pictures. Give me that. Oh, look Give at me it. That. You know, whatever. I, I think there was something funny and familiar and, you know, Jewish about kind of that that scene in general, but also just, you know, the way that kind of is handed down or not generationally, that kind of distinction between these generations of Holocaust survivors and their, you know, their children, their relatives who you know, we're, we're spared from the weight of that. I think there was something very evocative in that scene. I'm not, I'm not sure if that makes for like a very obvious most Jewish scene. I might've just kind of pulled in some other reads there, but but that uh, that's just what came to mind. It was pretty funny the way that, with the, but his sister or aunt or whoever, but the older lady was like, you know, really trying to connive her way into this Europe trip. That was- exactly. Her what do you way- think? What do you think? <laughs> you know, but you no, know, I might as well go, you know. <laughs> Yeah, like I don't even want to go. It's for the kids, but if, if right. you want to, yeah. yeah, no, exactly. I was gonna say you've reinforced most of your scene. I'm, I'm gonna stick with that one. No, I, for yeah. sure. I mean, it also like it had, uh, you know, because this movie came out in the '60s. I would say that like the sort of uh, setting of it reminded me a little bit of like uh, Serious Man, in that it was like that era and like suburbs and yeah, like you're saying, like someone has this incredible trauma and he's like having these nightmares in the middle of the backyard and the kids are like chasing each other around and she's listening to like teen music and he's like you know totally unaware of what's going on so um good picks all around thanks for lightening it up a little bit harry (laughs) shall we move on to the stretch of the pod please so you know this is something that the filmmaker sydney lumet had not intended to be a jewish thing but using our special Jews on film glasses, we are able to like hone in on a specific scene or like a statement or a character or things like that. Anything come to mind? I, I can get us started with this one. Sure. I, I went a little bit of like, I think this this character, this someone who experiences something so you know dark and terrible and then loses their faith. And there's a line where explicitly in the movie, Saul says like, God, like, I don't believe in God. Like, how could I anymore? I mean, that's something that we see mirrors of throughout, you know, Jewish history and, you know, biblical history. The one that I wanted to specifically shout out is uh, the the person who comes up in the, in the Talmud, in the Gemara, uh, Alicia Benabuya, who's referred to in the Talmud as Acher because he is, you know, other because he is this kind of case of a lapsed Jewish person that, you know, and I'll, I'll give a shout out to my dad in the book uh, As a Driven Leaf, which really kind of depicts this story that my dad is very fond of. But, um, but in this story, you know, it's the character you know, the, the story is, and this is actually in the Talmud itself, is that he, you know, his faith lapses because he sees something that doesn't make theological sense to him. He sees, I think there's like two mitzvahs, there's two, you know, uh, you know, acts that the reward for them is longer life. And one is honoring your parents and one is uh, honoring, is, uh, you know, sending a bird a bird away from its nest before you take it. It's just like a very specific thing. And mm-hmm. the story goes, he saw someone kind of listening to his father who told him to do that, right? The two things that would reward you with longer life falls off the, uh, you know, the ladder that he was, you know, climbing up and dies. And that kind of forces to him to uh, to lapse his faith. So is there a mirror with that? And, you know, the Holocaust, that's not a path that I'm prepared to go down right now. But just thematically, this theme of like the lapse Jew, and then even the one who kind of 
confronts that later on because the Alicia Benavuya story kind of continues and, you know, the rabbis like check in with him much later and he kind of realizes where he went wrong but says it's too late for him. Again, it's it's a thematic connection. I could have pulled in any story. This really was just an opportunity to shout out my dad in the story. But but I uh, I saw a connection there. Maybe there could have been inspiration. You probably didn't need that when you were dealing with the very real, you know, lapsed faith and trauma associated with the Holocaust. So I would say probably not a touchstone for this movie, but you know, it was uh it was a funny connection that I that I thought I could pull in. But uh anyone have any more compelling uh stretches that they want to share? I have one and I hope I'm getting this right. I mean, and, and who knows? Sydney Lumet could have thought, or Lumet could have thought about this. We don't mm-hmm. really know what's in his sure. mind. Yeah, uh, exactly. But uh, when the when the black one brings in the candelabras, that's uh-huh. like so. Those are like Jewish, you know. The what do they call them? Oh my gosh, I'm blinking right now. Shabbat candles, candlesticks. But, the, right. You know, it's kind of like I'm gonna get this pawnbroker who's Jewish to buy these. Oh. You know. Got it. You know, that's cool. I that's funny because I I saw them and I clocked them as like those feel very Jewish. And I like that read that, you know, you're supposed to implicitly understand that he's trying that she's trying to appeal to his, you know, sense of Jewishness. But obviously, as we know, he that's not going to work on him. Exactly. I'm torn. Right. Because I want to go like I want to go like the Jesus direction as far as my stretch. But I feel like that's too on the nose, especially with him, like giving himself like a little stigmata action um so i might just give you a preview of that which i just did and we can kind of move on from that but i i do want to talk about the the customers of the store i feel like they're they're like spiritual angelic they just have like an otherworldly kind of vibe they're all so different and so interesting and they like sort of i feel like there's like tons of and you know please keep me honest here you you too but like i feel like there's tons of like folk tales were like you know like angels will visit someone and like try to impart a lesson on them and they're so like ah, no thanks not for me i'm not interested and like there's a couple people who try to sell him stuff and he conducts business and he but there's that one guy who's like really he's like oh he's like what do you have what do you want to sell me like just take it out of your pocket just get it over with and he's like i have nothing to bring i I will miss talking to you. And so my stretch would be that these are like spirits, angels, whatever, that are trying to like get him to open up, getting to open up and and to kind of like bring him back to humanity, you know, and and be like, we're not all scum of the earth like you think we are. We're we're good people. We're trying to give you like Parnassa, like business, you know. And it's such a you know to be to go to a pond you know they're in such a desperate situation and i mean i think he treats everyone fairly but it's all it's just you feel for everybody that walks in there because nobody wants to do that that's this is people having to do that because they have no other choice you know right i mean like people are selling you know my grandma's locket my speech award my little you know thing and uh candlesticks uh all sorts of very personal things to them, like these bronze shoes he's selling, like from his childhood, you know? They're very personal and they're all mementos of the past. They're all things that, you know, were in the past that are no longer of use that they're kind of getting rid of. Right. And he doesn't engage with his past, right? Like this. Oh, I like that. Yeah. And the most angelic one, I think, is the woman who was pregnant. She oh. was just, she was very otherworldly. Mm. And she was like, just 
you know, with the ring and it's just heartbreaking. And, you know, you think about that. Yeah, that's for sure. You know, a woman oh, glass, you know, yeah. glass. Then another thing that wasn't real, whatever she said some line about. Yeah. Well, she and was it, surprised, right? Like, she's like, huh, that's glass. Like she, I, she is and she isn't, you know, she's clearly. Right. She clearly broke off an engagement. So, yeah. ah, okay. That's what you're reading into. I thought that he just didn't want to like give her the time of day. So he's like, yeah, that's fake. Get out of here. <laughs> like, I don't want to deal with you right now. It's too much trauma for me to even engage with like wedding rings at this time. Maybe I misread that scene, but yeah, these were all good stretches. I feel like we definitely got a good stretch in. It's it's fun kind of bringing this to our guests who almost every episode are, are struggling to understand what it actually is. And it inspires some really creative answers, which I, uh, totally. I really liked yours. Um, and I'll just set up our final question, which is, uh, is this movie, quote unquote, good for the Jews? And like the stretch question to be interpreted, however makes sense to you i say yes i think this movie is good for the jews i think this movie is good for everybody yeah i think everyone should see it can i ask why i mean i think that there especially when it comes to the holocaust i think that you know there's this there can be this exhaustion you know that i think i feel it sometimes it's like oh okay and i and someone who works in a films news and worked on holocaust films it can feel like i've seen this i've seen this movie i've not seen this movie before you know, it, it, it and and it it just it and it doesn't pull at heartstrings and it's not sentimental, yeah. and though it is bleak, it's it's honest. You know, and I appreciate that for this film, like I do. So I think it's worthwhile to watch. I, I'm coming out in in the very same way. I think it's you know very important and good for the Jews for people to see Holocaust representations and see kind of the reality of it, but especially nowadays when people are rightfully skeptical of a lot of what they see to not you know romanticize or turn it into this like sentimental where it's like well how much of this really happened like the very sparse approach to the you know the match cutting or, or the uh, sorry the um like the jump cuts and daniel before you give your answer i might ask you to kind of explain the jump cuts as an editor to our audience just so that they're aware of kind of what we're talking about but just to finish my point like I think the way that it's just a very conf confrontational method of editing and just like, this is what it is. We'll let you kind of interpret this how you will is, uh, is very important and powerful for, you know, for the Jews and for the world, I think. So yeah, I like it. I mean, Nira's an editor too. So you're welcome to, to weigh oh, in here, please. But, uh, you know, I Two think editors. they're just like, I think they're called like flash cuts or flash frames. Yeah. Jump cut is like when you have a, a shot of this, like the same thing and it's, confuses you because it's like slightly different but at the same like, but later in the same thing right right yeah and so what a we're splash. seeing a flash cut yeah so what we're seeing is like a couple frames of a flashback uh you know as we go through the scene or as we go through the movie we see like you know two frames of hands on barbed wire and then like later on in the scene we'll see like four to six frames or eight frames or like longer durations and we sort of like play out the scenes little by little but i think the way that the editor, got to give a shout out to the editor whenever we can, Ralph Rosenblum, who also worked on some Woody Allen films and he cut the producers as well. The way that Ralph Rosenblum, like he was able to edit this film, like I think it accurately represents what's going on in Saul's mind. So it's like a really like a short blip of a memory. And then the more that he like thinks about it, it kind of like expands out to like a more uh, full scene. And we kind of get a sense of, you know, what it is he's he's thinking about and as a result, he gets more like detached. Did I cover that from an editing perspective, Hira? And just, I, I just want to, on that point, and this is like tangent someplace else, but like to like directly uh, 
you know, say the opposite of what I said earlier about how like sure. and like have all the Holocaust stuff. And it's like it's like in terms of it containing what the Holocaust is, it's like asking the audience to fill in dots. At the same time, by using the flashes like that, I think it's actually being very, very sensitive to the people that have experienced it, you know, mm-hmm. because I think, you know, you're not asking them to relive that trauma by seeing this movie, you know, if that's something the viewer had seen or experienced themselves. And I feel like this film is a film for people that have, you know, Holocaust trauma, you know, I feel like this movie is for that. You're saying because it like it sort of gives you like enough of a taste of what he went through and but not by like showing the full the full experience of it. They could still get a sense of like what happened. I'm just saying like because those images, they know that, you know, what I mean? yeah. they know it is. So they don't need to see it stressed out. They don't need to see a whole scene happen. You know, they can mm-hmm. fill in the dots, you know, the blank spaces that, you know, otherwise a flash wouldn't have. Right. And yeah. also experience of sometimes a lot of times that is what trauma can feel like is like these flashes you're doing something else and it just you know comes to mind kind of freezes you right yeah it's probably a more accurate reflection of how memory works as opposed to you know in like old movies when like the screen used to get wavy and then you see kind of the entire thing play out for the audience and it comes back in like that's how it it shows up in these flashes right you know the character's kind of like you know, like exactly. zoning out. Are you, like, Are you okay? Yeah, I was just thinking about that time when my. Dad I always think about what they looked like for that ten-minute scene. Like, what oh, the person yeah. looked like in real life? Were they just like staring at the wall for ten minutes? Like, that'd be weird. That's the opening motion scene. I was like, "What is going on over here?" Yeah, there? yeah. It, it was. I mean, like in a good way. It was weird. Like, mm-hmm. it felt very dreamlike because, like, the film. You know, for context, the film just like starts in a slow motion with music playing and like kids like running around in a field like playing with butterflies and you have no idea of what's going on uh, but then you get a little bit more context as a yeah very you interesting way to open that's fair about to happen sort of like don't look now made me think of it a little bit i don't know if you know that yeah. movie um you should see it i mean very not jewish movie but is, is it, it a about... horror movie is that is that the one yeah yeah okay i think okay. that's on the channel right now actually they have it so not so subtle plug to sign up for criterion channel and check out Nero's film charm circle there you go. After. Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah, I, I just think and also in like fitting with the memory, like at first my instinct I was about to say is that that first scene might have been more for the audience than like the flash cutting. But honestly, I think that's a memory that he cherishes and possesses and probably has played over many times. Like that's one that he slows down to kind of capture those moments before, you know, and then really only in slow motion we see the stuff before things get really bad. But, you know, these other memories... It's like, I think they're both true to Saul's experience, you know, the way we see him. Yeah. So we, Daniel, did you say definitively good or bad for Jews this movie? Thank you so much for asking, Nira. Look. I feel like you're doing Harry's job here. Come on, Harry, pick up the sled. I was about to get to that, I promise. <laughs> I was torn, right? Because I feel like there is another version of this film in the multiverse where, like, it's a much more Hollywood ending where, like, Saul's like, you know what? I should be nice to people. I should reconnect with humanity. Thank you, Jesus, for showing me the the way of 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 being good. And so, like, yeah. it didn't go that direction. Um, you know, ultimately, Jesus dies, and you know, Saul just like walks away from his shop aimlessly, becoming a wandering Jew. Uh, you know, the film did kind of receive some pushback from 
from black groups who felt that it was like stereotypical of like people who were pimps and prostitutes and drug addicts and and Jews also felt that it was kind of anti-Semitic. So like in that regard, I feel like there could have been like a more likable character. So, you know, to echo what you two were both saying in terms of like it being an important film that like accurately depicts what the mind of a survivor and the trauma and all that stuff, you know, is like, I, I'm, I'm coming kind of right down the middle. I would say that like, it's not great for, for the Jews because like the Jew in our story is like an asshole and he's dealing with trauma and he's like generally not nice to people. So yeah, maybe like, meh. the legacy of the film itself, I would say is, is an important one, but you know, the Jew in the film is not really the main Jew in the film is not someone I love. Sorry to say, but I but I like that there's a you know more nuanced depiction. Like I don't need him to be this like ultimate victim sure. and just like lovable. Like the, the, he's not you know someone who's been struggling and has cut themselves sure. off is almost also deserving of you know that characterization that pity kind of sure that we uh, we might ascribe to someone yeah. suffering. With those it's things. an accurate depiction of that that person in that in that state of mind in that you know time of the world. But uh, you know it's a tough one to wrestle with. So. I'm going to say like, meh, <laughs> like 50, 50. Self is very aware of that, you know? Uh-huh. That, yep. So I feel like because, and even though it, he is hard to like, you know, um, I feel that because the movie is making a point of it, mm-hmm. that it makes it okay, in my opinion. Because yeah. the movie, this it's not like doing this yeah. and unaware. It's, it's making, that's the whole point. Right. You know, is that he's not taking care of I'll still stick with my answer, though. I feel like, you know, there have been, like, better depictions of Jews on film, um, which you can listen to plenty of episodes where we say that the movies are good for Jews. This one, probably not as much. So, yeah. Fair enough. All right, so let's let's hear that in numbers. Let's take us to the final section of the podcast where we give the film a rank of one to five, on a scale of one to five Jewish stars, taking into account the uh, cast and crew, content, themes, and a reminder to our guests and to our audience members, this is a rating of how Jewish the movie is, not necessarily the quality of the movie. So on a scale of one to five Jewish stars, how you know Jewish is this movie? Nira, you're our guest. Yeah. Would you like to go first? Uh, I'd say it's pretty Jewish. Uh, so I think I'm going to go with a four. four. You know, I say if we would say Fiddler on a Roof on the Roof is a five. We did give that one a five, yes. Last week, yeah. Yeah. Four stars? Four four Jewish stars. Four Jewish stars. Okay. Harry? Four stars stars of David. There you go. You got it. You're speaking the lingo. Like, I'm torn. I think that in a way that some of the other, you know, more Jewish movies are more Jewish in the way that I personally respond to are ones that really dive into kind of, you know, faith and community and culture and really embrace that. And obviously, I think... Or I should point out, I respond more to those because they mirror my own feelings, my own sentiment, my own, you know, experience with this. But also, you know, like that, like the celebration of kind of Jewish life feels very Jewish to me. And this is not showing that. I mean, this is showing the exact opposite of that. This is someone who has completely rejected that and was scorned by that and turned away very understandably so. And it's it doesn't feel like I want to characterize it as the most Jewish because it doesn't feel that. But at the same time, I'm not going to let myself go too low because I have to acknowledge that this is very true to the experience of not just Saul Nazerman, but a lot of Jewish people who, whether or not they 
cared for their Jewishness, remained Jewish, and that was, you know, part of their lives. So I, I want to make sure that I, you know, honor that or just at least, you know, factor that into my ranking. So I, I don't think I can go up to a four. I think I'll keep it at like a three and a half, you know, definitely over our two and a half, you know, star threshold of this is definitely Jewish. I mean, at the very least, this is a Holocaust story. And that is very much, you know, for better or for worse, part of the Jewish uh, experience, you know, going back or for worse, but going back, you know, the last hundred years or so. But um, but yeah, but I, but I think that this is very much a Jewish character with their Jewish experience. So three and a half stars for me. How about you, Daniel? What do you think? Well, I I think I'm like going back to the like the categorization of this film, like that we talked about at the beginning. Like, is this a Holocaust movie or is this a movie about New York that has like a Jewish character at its center? And like, he's you know, for all intents and purposes, he's kind of like the Jew in the story. There are other side characters that don't factor as heavily into like the telling of the main story, you know, so it's, it's a tricky one. Uh, you know, I, through the conversation today, I feel like I'm convinced that this is like a very uh, important film in the sort of not Holocaust genre. Cause it's like, I don't know, it's, it's survivor genre of, of the Holocaust or things like that. So it's like, um, I'll probably have to go somewhere like maybe split the difference between you two, if that's okay. So maybe 3.75 stars of David, because it's certainly way above like two and a half, but it's a, it's a, the center of our, our story is a Jewish character. It's in New York, very Jewish place, deals with the Holocaust. So points awarded, uh, the editor is Jewish. The writer of the original novel is Jewish. Sidney Lumet is Jewish. I think he comes from like a Yiddish theater background. His parents were in Yiddish theater. He was a child actor uh, in Yiddish theater. And then the, it was the, the script was written by Morton Fine and David Friedkin, also Jews. Rod Steiger, not Jewish. So I don't think there's anybody um, aside from, I think, Sidney Lumet's dad was, was he played the old guy in the bed. Uh, uh, he was Jewish. And then even Tessie, his girlfriend, is played by a Swedish actress, Marketa Kimbrell. So not a lot of points awarded for the cast uh, and crew other than like the director and writer and author. So, um, but yeah, 3.75 stars. So that's kind of a long-winded answer. Apologies there. Nira Bursting, thanks so much for being here on Jews on Film to discuss The Pawnbroker. Uh, I wanted to ask if you could tell our audience a little bit about Charm Circle and where they could check it out. Yeah, I mean, you can check out Charm Circle right now on the Criterion channel. And you can stream it. And if you don't have Criterion Channel right now, you can sign up for a week for free. And then you could, you know, keep it or not keep it. That's your business. But technically, you watch the movie for free. So I would I would definitely suggest it. And, you know, like the movie um, The Prom Broker today, it is about a kind of curmudgeon Jew. <laughs> yeah, saving like my father. And, uh, you know, but uh, it, it, it's, it's definitely, I mean, I'm curious if you, how many stars of, of two you would give <laughs> Charm Circle because there are things that are very Jewish and things that are very not Jewish like um, you know my sister is polyamorous wedding the two other people so I just uh, yeah but it's it's, 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 a, it's a documentary about my family I shot it over six years and I, I'm, a, I'm the worst person explaining my own so it's it's a, it's a portrait of my family and and some of the things they struggled with and, and combines archival and um, present day footage to kind of navigate the familial bonds that sometimes feels like, you know, they can break and, you know, what the meaning of family is, community. 
Yeah, I mean, we talked a lot about like community in the movie today, like, you know, what would have happened if Saul had community. And it sounds like, you know, with you and your sisters and your family, like, I wanted to talk about like, you know, processing things that's that are going on, like how, how did it help you process and your family process everything that was going on in the documentary? Like, I imagine that like sitting down and asking your mom, your dad, your sisters, the questions, you know, about what's going on? How are you feeling? Like, how did that help you and your family process their surroundings? I mean, overall, I would say, at least for me, for sure, it's a very healing experience, you know? But I think that's like, these are things that like oscillate. It's not like, oh, just once you get on the road of healing, you're just on it and it's done. No, it's going to be always an up and down situation. And just, you know, you're trying to inch forward sometimes sometimes it's like two steps forward one step back right so but overall I mean I'm really grateful for this experience and I feel like you know and just to connect it back to the pawnbroker like basically we have someone who refuses to talk about anything and here I have my family basically being very very honest about a lot of stuff is in its own way very disarming right and so um, it's just really interesting to, to, to juxtapose that, those ideas. And not to say that like talking about stuff fixes things. It doesn't, it doesn't. And uh, sometimes I get this, uh, you know, feedback about like, oh, if there was only people that could have helped my mom. She has like a lot of mental health. Stuff. If only somebody there, there was community or something to help. And I'm like, there was, you know, there was, and maybe like, that's not the point maybe of going into all of that with the movie that I was making, but that doesn't necessarily solve anything, right? I think just healing is just like a step-by-step process, you know, and how you're feeling. I think certainly audiences are like uh, conditioned to like have like the character go from point A to point B and like have everything kind of wrapped up at the end of 90 minutes. But the reality is that like life is not like that, you know, yeah. like, you know, uh, that it's an evolving thing and things change, especially with family. Like, but, uh, you know, sometimes... I do wish, uh, well, maybe I shouldn't say this, but sometimes I do wish that I could like sit my parents down in front of a camera and ask them questions and be like, what was up with this, this thing or that thing? And be able to like have this sort of, uh, analytical or sort of, you know, being able to like get the down low on something that you really are like you, I mean, you asked it brilliantly, like a couple times to your folks, you're like, what's up with the house? Like, why is it this way? Or what happened with this? And like, you're able to be very frank about certain things and ask them questions and get clarity that like, I don't know that I would have had, like, if I wasn't making a movie, I don't know that I would have the opportunity to like be that honest and open with them, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we were basically having the same conversations without cameras anyway, Okay. but allowed me to direct it in another way. Like, it's like, there really was, it's like, I was, I, I don't understand why my parents' house is so messy. I think of my parents as such brilliant, smart, you know, you know, they they could have their shit together, but somehow they don't. So how does that happen, right? Mm-hmm. You know, and mm-hmm. that's what I was trying to unpack and understand and unpack it in a way that's not like making me angry or upset, you know, because it, it hurts. Sure. You know, the people you love not doing well, you know. Yeah, and I, I I encourage everyone with a camera or not to like have conversations with your family. It's just incredible how little we 
we know about ourselves and like people that mm-hmm. raise us. It's like you, you don't know your parents, you know, when you're a kid, you know, it takes time. I, I sat my dad down once, like when I got a new camera uh, from work, like I used to work at B&H Photo, so I got a camera. I came home once for a holiday and it was like, this was a long time ago, maybe like 10, 12 years ago. And I like sat him down and asked him questions about his childhood. Cause like, you're right as a child, you're like raised by your parents and then you grow up and you go to college and you don't want to have anything to do with your parents. And then you come back and you're like, Oh my God, my parents are like human beings. Like I'm able to say like, Abba, what was your childhood like? And he told me all these like crazy stories of like the army in Israel or like going to boarding school in France and all this stuff. And I'm like, wait, all this happened to you? Like, how did I not know this? Like, you don't know until you ask these questions. And then, you know, if you're lucky, they'll open up and they'll be able to like, you know, spin all these yarns for you and tell you great stories. And, you know, your parents seem like really open people and like they are able to like tell very good stories. And, and you know, I think you are able to like mesh the archival footage like beautifully. And, you know, seeing Little Nero was very fun. And I'm yeah. like, <laughs> you know, like, you know, seeing, uh, you know, seeing your family and, and, you know, you executed it really well, like, uh, you know, at the right times and, and, uh, and having them just be so open with you is, you know, it's really a gift. I think it's it's awesome. It is, yeah. So that's why I thought I'd share this thing. Yeah. So we'd encourage everyone, go check out Charm Circle on Criterion Channel. Uh, thank you so much again for being here uh, to talk about the Pawn Broker. And uh, yeah. Thank you. Don't forget, uh, everyone, to check out Jews on Film on social media. And if you have any questions or comments, email us at jewsonfilmpod at gmail.com. Thanks, everyone. Have a great one, and Shabbat Shalom. Bye.